Well, good morning, Redemption Church. As Joel said, uh, my name is, is Neil Pitchell, and uh, um, in addition to being one of the pastors, I am also a Jewish person that believes that Jesus is the Messiah, so, uh, so the opportunity to, to teach about the Passover is certainly a blessing for me. So, um, As you know, uh, the greatest event in all of history for Christians is the day that God defeated sin and death, raising Jesus from the dead, which of course we celebrate as Easter. But for the Jew, the greatest event in all history is the day that God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Easter and Passover are forever linked as examples of God's great power and amazing grace. So the passage that we look at today is one of the most important in all of Scripture for basically two reasons. First, the Passover as an historical event marking the deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the Promised Land is the defining redemptive event in the entire Old Testament. So it serves as a picture of the eternal redemption that we have in Christ. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. The second reason it's important is Passover as a feast, a commemorative celebration of the exodus from Egypt, became the high point of Israel's worship. So it was the Passover Seder that Jesus celebrated with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And it has become the model for our communion celebration. So before we dig into this uh, mighty act of redemption, we need to see what happened right before in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is where we see God giving us the final step in convincing Pharaoh to let his people go so that they might worship him. So if you have your Bibles, open to uh, Exodus chapter 11. If, if not, the, uh, the verses for everything we look at today will be on the screen. I'm going to read the entire uh, 11th chapter, just 10 verses. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. 
Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So this chapter, uh, chapter 11, acts as a transition from the nine plagues that we looked at last week to this devastating 10th plague. Now, the prior plagues mostly had to do with uh, Egypt's climate and their geography. And in fact, uh, Pharaoh's magicians were able to actually imitate the first few. So, so skeptics could have said, oh, oh, those plagues aren't actually uh, an act of God. But this 10th plague is unmistakably the work of God. There can be no other explanation other than God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And, and here's why. There's no historical record of any uprising, of any battle that occurred, of, of any nation coming into Egypt to free the people of Israel from slavery. They simply walked out. Now, when you think about the fact that it took the bloodiest war in our nation's history to end slavery in this country, Israel's departure from Egypt had to be a work of divine intervention. This 10th plague, like the other nine, is a divine work of God's power, of God's judgment, but also of God's grace. Now, in, in the first two verses, it's just really a recap of what God had told Moses before he came to Pharaoh on this final visit. He gave him uh, information that, in fact, there was one more plague yet to come. But, but he also told him um, that the Egyptians would gladly give the Israelites, as they left Egypt, their most valuable possessions. That seems awfully surprising, and there's a lot of speculation as to why would, why would they do that? Um, but it's simply because it's what God said would happen. In his sovereignty, God gave Israel favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. That Hebrew word for favor uh, is chesed, and it's translated either favor or grace. But it means getting something that you didn't earn. The Egyptians didn't say, oh, Israel, gosh, you've done such a good job as our slaves. We're going to give you all of our jewelry when you go. Or they didn't even say, oh, these plagues have been so terrible. Um, take this jewelry and, and our valuables and just stay away. No, it was simply because God said it's what was going to happen. In fact, he said it to Moses uh, back at the burning bush in chapter 3, uh, verse 21, if you want to just flip back there for a second or look at the screen. God said to Moses, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. And, and then hundreds of years even before that, God speaking to Abraham about this same situation said this in Genesis chapter 15, verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Don't ever be surprised that God will do exactly what he says he's going to do. No matter how remarkable it seems, 
Our God is not just a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. Now in verse 4, Moses announces that God himself is coming. God will march through the land of Egypt because Pharaoh won't let his people go. And that's really good news for the Jewish people, but really bad news uh, for the Egyptians. Yet God, in his mercy, warns them in advance of the impending doom so that they would still have an opportunity to turn and believe him and, and do what he says by letting the people go. And then in verses 4 through 6, the actual plague is announced. All of Egypt's firstborn will die. And it would affect the entire population, causing un unimaginable grief for every family, from the poorest to the most powerful. Even their livestock will be affected. To me, that's a reminder of the collateral devastation that comes when we decide to disobey God. Not only will we experience the consequences, but we can't sin in a vacuum. We can't disobey in a vacuum. When we do, it invariably impacts those closest to us, and that's exactly what happened here. And then in verse 7, it says that God makes a distinction the Lord puts a difference between Egypt and Israel. There will be fear and death for the Egyptians, but, but not for Israel. Nothing is going to harm them or even concern them. In fact, he uses the example, he says the wild dogs that harass everybody during this time aren't even going to growl at the people of Israel. Egypt will receive all of God's wrath and Israel none of it. Now, it's important to see that, that God doesn't just like notice a difference between Israel and Egypt. It says that God makes the difference. The Hebrew verb there uh, indicates causative action. It's as though God had this uh, lump of defective clay and he split it into, into two pieces and he decides to take one piece and, and have mercy and, and use it uh, later. And he looks at the other piece that's still just as defective as this one, and he said, no, I'm not going to use this, and he destroys it. God in his sovereignty can choose to do that, and that's what he does here. But why? Why would God spare the one and not the other? Believe me, the Israelites were no bargain. They were no less sinful than the Egyptians. They had even worshipped some Egyptian gods. They were rebellious. They were idolaters. They were unbelieving. But the difference was that God had chosen them to be his people and he promised to give them grace even though they had been disobedient. We see that truth in, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 through 8. So if you want to just turn over there to the right to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. God said, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. 
but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out, of the, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Because God loved them, he will provide a way to protect them from the death of the firstborn, not by ignoring their sin, but by protecting them from it through the death of the Passover lamb. The supreme expression of God's love is that he saves sinners who deserve death. And then in verse 8, it, it tells us that Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence in hot anger. And I think we can kind of understand his frustration. Uh, have you ever been in a situation where you're talking to someone who you know is going to make a mistake, who has made a decision that is bad for him or her and, and their future, and you've told them the truth and told them the truth, and they just are blinded to it, and they're going to continue in that direction? It's very frustrating. But for Moses, Moses, rather than focus on the frustration, focused on the fact that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. God is powerful. God is faithful, and he will fulfill his promise. And in anticipation of that, God said, uh, Moses said, this is a done deal. God is going to do what he says. I, I think for us, who when we face challenges in our life, when we face all kinds of different difficulties, we need to remember that God keeps his promises. If you are suffering a, a loss, uh, maybe it's a loved one, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a job, did you know that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said that God is the God of all comfort and that he will comfort those in any affliction so if you are facing that loss, hold on. God promises to bring you comfort. Maybe you're facing a temptation that is, is such a burden and it is drawing you away from your love for God. You feel like you can't possibly overcome it. Do you know in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God says that every temptation, any temptation that we face is, is common to the rest of us. And with that temptation, because God is faithful, he will provide a way of escape. So hold on. God will provide a way around and away from that temptation. Maybe you're, you're anxious over some future event that will or won't happen and you're just suffering with anxiety. Did you know in chapter 4 of the Philippians, Apostle Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God that passes all human understanding will be yours in Christ Jesus. If you're struggling with anxiety, hold on. God promises peace. But as long as we can look at him and what he promises, rather than focusing on the frustrations and the challenges that invariably come. Now, chapter 11 seems to end... Uh, kind of in a stalemate. Okay? Uh, Moses is angry. Pharaoh is obstinate. But chapter 12 tells us that God has the power to do exactly what he says he's going to do. Uh, chapter 12 is rather long. It's about, 50, no, it's not about, it's exactly 51 verses. So we're not going to read that whole thing today. Uh, but I do want you to know it's broken into four distinct sections. 
the first 20 verses uh, is the revelation God gives regarding the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verses 21 to 28 give the details of what Moses told the people to do as they prepared to leave Egypt. Verses 29 to 42 gives us the actual historical account of the first Passover, including the, the 10th plague and Israel's departure from Egypt after 430 long years. And then verses 43 to 51 give regulations concerning the, the Passover, especially as it relates uh, to foreigners interacting with, with the Jews uh, in the future. Uh, but, but all four sections really focus on the Passover. Passover is the oldest continually celebrated holiday ordained by God on the planet. For over 3,000 years, it has been bringing Jewish families together to celebrate this great act of redemption that we learn about here in chapters 11 and chapter 12. I celebrated uh, for most of my young life with, with my, my family, and honestly, it was the best of times and the worst of times. Um, best of times, because my grandmother was an amazing cook, and uh, we had a great meal. Uh, worst of times was because the actual Seder, uh, which we uh, experienced, which was the retelling of this story, uh, both in Hebrew and in English, um, and the Seder means order, and we would use a Haggadah, a Haggadah, properly in Hebrew, uh, which means the telling. Uh, it would take two, sometimes three hours. And that smell of the food my grandmother was cooking would be wafting into the dining room as we went through this on and on and on and on. So that was the best and the worst of times. Um, but what it tells us here in, in chapter 12 is that because Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt was to be a new beginning, that God was actually changing the calendar. He was now going to make this month, the month of their redemption from uh, slavery in Egypt, the first month of the year. If you go back to, to Exodus chapter 12 and uh, look at verses 1 and 2, it said, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. This story is so important that God literally changed the calendar to make it the first month of the year. Israel would always know every time they looked at the calendar that this was an important story for their past and their future. But the rest of uh, the beginning section of, of chapter 12 uh, details the instructions that God gives to his people in preparation for him coming to Egypt on their behalf. They needed to make great preparation to be prepared uh, it begs the question, I guess, for us is, do we prepare ourselves when we come into the presence of God, when we come together uh, to worship him as his people here on a Sunday morning or in our uh, redemption community groups during the week or men's and women's ministry and youth ministry? Uh, do we come ready to hear from God? Do we come with excited anticipation of what God's going to teach us that day or the expression to worship him. Um, some of you might remember the uh, English comedian, uh, Mr. Bean. Uh, Mr. Bean, uh, one of his little um, 
vignettes was he was a, a waiter in a, a very exclusive hotel in London, and the queen was coming to visit their restaurant. So the maitre d' had all of the servers lined up to make sure everything was just perfect. And of course, Mr. Bean was extremely nervous. He was making sure his shoes were shined properly and his pants were properly pressed and everything was in order and that he wasn't shaking hands the wrong way or bowing. He was so nervous. They were all so nervous because they were coming into the presence of the queen. We come into the presence of the king of the universe. Are we prepared? Are our hearts ready to give him our best? For Israel, God required for their preparation a sacrifice. And in the next uh, verses from 3 to 14, he gives detailed instructions for picking a specific lamb on a specific day. It had to be the right size for the family. So if your family was too small so that it would be no waste, you got together with another family. Um, now, it also had to be a male. It had to be the right age. It had to be one year old. And it had to be without defect, pure in every way possible. And then they were told to take that lamb into their home for four days literally treating it as part of the family. It was to impress upon them the great cost of this sacrifice that was to come. And then at the end of the four days, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel was to kill the lamb at twilight. Now the fact that they were to do it at the same time and in the same way was an expression of their community. The fact that they were learning to, to worship together at the same time in the same way so that as God took them from Egypt and began to build them up as a people, they would understand how important that community was. Um, but it was what God said that would happen next that differentiates the Passover from all the other sacrifices. Look at verse 7 of chapter 12. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Some of the blood from the sacrificed lamb was to be placed on the outside of the homes where it could be plainly seen. In verse 22, we are told how that blood was to be placed on the doorpost. It was to be done with hyssop, either a branch or uh, a bunch of hyssop. And hyssop is significant because throughout Scripture, hyssop was used to apply blood for the cleansing of sin. When King David was confessing his terrible sin of adultery and murder, he cried out to God in Psalm 51, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. We know from the Gospel of John that it was a branch of hyssop that the Roman soldier took and dipped into the wine and gave it to Jesus as he hung on the cross, cleansing our sin uh, with his blood. Now, the significance of the blood is seen in verse 23. Chapter 12, verse 23. It says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel, on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. 
God promised to pass over the houses sprinkled with the blood of the spotless lamb as he executed judgment against the firstborn of Egypt. Now, it's important to notice that the destroyer is not going to kind of work his way around all of the areas of, of Egypt, avoiding those places where Israel lived. No, he's going to completely cover the land. Uh, think of a, a monsoon haboob. Uh, take a look at this picture. Um, this destroyer is going to come and cover everything in its path. The difference will be he will pass over those protected by the blood of the sacrificed lamb but enter those houses without it to execute judgment. It is the blood and only the blood that makes the difference. Every family, Jew or Egyptian, without the protection of the blood will forfeit the life of their firstborn. And this is exactly as God had said just a few chapters earlier in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 22 to 23. God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. But Pharaoh refused to let them go. Even after those, those nine plagues, uh, the, the painful but, but gracious warnings. Um, so because of, of his stubbornness and his wickedness, God executed judgment exactly as he promised. Look at uh, 29 to 32, Exodus chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go up from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and, and bless me also." As God brought judgment against all sin in Egypt, including that of the Jews, the blood of an innocent life covered a guilty life in the eyes of a holy God. Verse 30 says, there wasn't a single house in all of Egypt where there wasn't someone dead. There was either a dead lamb or a dead firstborn member of the family. It was the lamb's blood that turned aside God's judgment against the sin of Israel. The blood of the lamb is the sign of a, a sacrificial death. It was because of the blood that God passed over those homes. The blood on the doorposts indicated that there was a substitute, that a lamb had died in their place. Now, it's important to understand that they didn't have to be a Jew in order to be protected. It wasn't who was in the house. It was what was on the outside of the house. 
In fact, at verse 38, uh, it says very clearly that a mixed multitude went up. Verse 38 of chapter 12 says, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and, and herds. It was the blood applied to the doorpost that protected the firstborn in the house regardless of their nationality. That lamb that was sacrificed that day is a very clear picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. The death of that lamb in the place of the firstborn points forward to what Jesus did for those who put their trust in his blood shed on the cross. That lamb was not a willing participant that night, but Jesus willingly laid down his life in sacrificial, substitutionary love for us. John the Baptist said that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Christ came, said the Messiah would be like a lamb led to the slaughter, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, he would be crushed for our iniquities, and with his wounds we are healed. Several years after Jesus' death, the apostle Peter wrote these words in his first letter Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Folks, on that cross, our Lord became our lamb. Our Savior was also our sacrifice. The judge became the judged. He did it for God's glory and for our salvation. The price demanded of us for our sin has been offered in our place by Jesus as our substitute. If we believe that, his innocent life covers our guilty life in the eyes of a holy and just God. Jesus perfectly and completely fulfilled the Passover. So the greatest deliverance of all time wasn't Israel's exodus from Egypt, as amazing as it was, but it was the deliverance of men and women from slavery to sin and death by Jesus as he fulfilled the role of the Passover lamb. And what we learn from, from chapter 12 is not only did he fulfill the Passover, but he also fulfilled the Feast of Unleavened Bread that God said must follow the Passover celebration in verses 18 to 20. Chapter 12, verse 18 says, In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat only unleavened bread. The connection between Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is significant for us as Christians as well. The practicing Jewish family will come together for a Seder each year to remember that great night of redemption. 
And then for the next seven days and nights, eat only unleavened bread, uh, which is matzah. You've heard of matzah. Um, my mouth is dry just thinking about it. Um, all I can think of is my every day eating uh, peanut butter and jelly on matzah. I mean, I think I might need a little glass of water right now just to think about getting it, getting it through us. It was, <clears throat> it was quite dry. But the reason uh, they did it was to remember uh, that on that first, four, first Passover, their forefathers had, didn't have time to let the bread rise before they were to leave Egypt in haste. Look, look at uh, verse 33. It says, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and in their shoulders. Be, now, why? Why did they have to do this? It's because throughout the Old Testament, leaven represents the corrupting power of sin. So what happens in, a, in most Jewish homes, not all of them, but um, before the actual Seder begins, uh, the leader, grandpa usually, or dad, will hide little pieces of bread throughout the house. And then when the children are all gathered, um, we get little uh, bags, little paper bags, and we're supposed to go through the house and, and find those pieces of bread, put them in the bags, and bring them to dad. And then he takes them outside the house and either burns them or throws them away and says, God, to the best of my knowledge, my house has been cleansed of leaven and is ready for your presence. Like, like leaven works its way through the whole lump of dough, sin will try to extend its influence throughout our entire life. The instruction to remove the leaven and to take none of it with them was a gesture reminding Israel to leave behind the corrupting influences of Egypt. Those, those pagan gods, those, those pagan practices, they needed to leave those behind. One commentator said God wanted something more than getting the people out of Egypt. He wanted Egypt out of the people. Passover is about God's mighty act of redemption and saving Israel from slavery, which teaches us today that we have been delivered from sin and death by the perfect substitute, Jesus, whose blood was shed as a sacrifice for our sins. The Feast of Unleavened Bread teaches us what God wants us to do once we've been saved, once we've received that great gift, and that is to live an obedient life, putting those sinful practices and habits behind us. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We might think that just, you know, a little bit of sin is not that big a deal. I mean, what's a white lie? What's, what's a little look at a, at a porn site? Just for a moment, what's, what's the big deal about keeping the extra change that the cashier gives you uh, by accident? Well, honestly, when you think about it, well, uh, yesterday Kate and I were in Sedona and we went for a, 
a hike. Uh, it was beautiful, and, but she got a little pebble in her shoe. Um, and that made it way less pleasant. She couldn't wait to get her shoe off and get rid of that pebble. That little tiny pebble caused the problem. You ever get an eyelash? Can you barely see it? And that eyelash in your eye and just how irritating it is. And that's what happens when we leave a little bit of sin in our lives. But, but, but here's even worse. Like leaven, sin wants to expand. It wants to expand its, its corrupting influence in our lives. It will keep spreading. It will ruin the joy of the salvation that we have received and been purchased at such great cost. So before it spreads, we need to get it out. Just as the Jews were to remove leaven from their homes. The Passover signaled a deliverance and freedom and new life for the Jews in Egypt. Our salvation in Christ should cause us to desire to live a new life, putting those sinful habits behind us and to live obediently. We were bought with a price, and that price is the shed blood of Jesus. So Paul says we are to honor God by getting Egypt out of us, confessing our sin, turning away from it, and turning back to him in humble and consistent obedience. God's saving grace is never isolated from the call to follow Jesus. That's why the Feast of Unleavened Bread follows right after Passover. You know, Passover is such a clear picture of the salvation that we have in Christ. And it's interesting that most Jews who celebrate this year after year after year don't see it. I didn't see it for the 20 plus years that I celebrated Passover with my family. And then God opened my eyes to the truth and it just exploded before me that this story of redemption is a consistent story throughout all of scripture. And the story is that God does it all. God is the one who does it. And maybe you've sat here week after week just thinking, I got to be better. I got to do more. I got to make myself right before God. Or maybe, maybe you sat here very first time and, and you've never even heard this story. And you're thinking, wow, could it be that simple? Is all that you have to do is, is believe? You don't have to work at it? Or, or, or maybe you've been here for a long time and you've just thought, uh, my faith is, is just... It's just not strong enough. I need more faith. Listen, as God passed over those houses, he didn't peek inside to see how much faith the people inside had. Even if it was just the littlest bit of faith that believed that God would protect those who were covered with that blood, all they needed was just that little bit of faith. It could have been these Egyptians who had never heard anything about God, but just heard that story that God said, put the blood, and they believed it, and they did what he said. That's all we need to do. All we need to do is believe that we can't make ourselves right before God, no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we do and that Jesus did it all for us on our behalf. Just that much, just that much. And the Bible says that we're saved. We're his. And then 
We celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then we work at changing and work at becoming more like Christ. That's it. It's a simple story. It's the gospel. And it's the gospel preached from the Old to the New Testament. Always connected. Always the same story. Always very good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this incredible story of redemption. First for the people of Israel that shows us a picture of the eternal redemption that is to come in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to muster up a great deal of faith, that we don't have to work at becoming right, that we just need to believe that Jesus did what he said he was, what he'd come to do, to die and shed his blood to cover our guilty life so that we might be right with you. And then, Lord, let us then go forward and live like it because of the great cost of the gift that we've received. In Jesus' name, amen.